Welcome to No Silly Questions, an education podcast for parents with your hosts, Danielle Freilich and Jordana Fruchter, two New York City educators, school leaders, and friends. Over the years, we've received every question in the book from parents trying to understand the landscape of learning, development, and education. On this podcast, we bring you relatable, research-based answers from experts in the field. You'll hear from pediatric neuropsychologists, elected school officials, ed tech entrepreneurs, play advocates, professors of multiple intelligence theory, and more to bridge the gap of information and strengthen your parent toolkit. We want all parents to know that there is no such thing as a silly question. This episode is sponsored by Stocked by Three Owls. Have you ever wondered what life would be like if your fridge was always full with food you were genuinely excited to eat? Meet Stocked by Three Owls, the food delivery service you've actually been waiting for. Stocked delivers family-style, healthful, prepared foods that are designed to be mixed and matched, easily shared among diners both big and small, and last for several days so you and your family feel well taken care of all week long. No subscription, no plan, no single serving set meals, just the food you want when you want it. They have a for the littles menu for even the most particular eaters and they can accommodate allergies of all kinds. Know a hungry and tired new parent? Stocked also makes for the ideal gift. Try Stocked using code NOSILLY15 for 15% off your first order and see what they mean when they say happiness is a full fridge. Today's No Silly question is, how has American childhood evolved over time and how have we arrived at this cultural moment in parenting? On today's episode, we learn about the history of parenting and focus on what has made American childhood unique. With her deep knowledge on the subject matter, Paula gives us a lot to consider as we reflect back and look forward. We are so excited to have Paula S. Fass on our podcast today. Paula is a renowned historian of childhood and is the Margaret Byrne Professor of History Emerita at the University of California at Berkeley, where she taught for 36 years. She has also been a distinguished scholar-in-residence at Rutgers University. Trained as a social and cultural historian of the United States at Barnard College and Columbia University, she has over the last two decades been active in developing the field of children's history and working to make this an interdisciplinary field with a global perspective. Paula was the president of the Society of the History of Children and Youth, which she helped to found from 2007 to 2009. Paula has written many books related to childhood in America and has contributed to many collections in areas such as education, immigration, globalization, children's history, and children's policy. Her most recent book is The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child, published by Princeton University Press. Paula, we are really honored to have you today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to both of you. So Paula, you have a deep and extensive understanding of the history of American childhood. 
Tell us whether you think now is a good time to be a child in America. Well, it depends on, I don't want to sound Clintonian here, but it depends on what you mean by now. If you mean during the COVID crisis, then Mm -hmm. this is a very bad time to be alive. And to be a child is particularly fraught uh, because we're surrounded by fears of disease and the reality of disease uh, and death. And of course, the interruptions of schooling have have been really, really very difficult, I think, for children of all ages, uh, starting from preschool, uh, where there's a a lot of need for the interaction in schools, not just with teachers, but with peers as well. So if we bracket these last two and a half years, and, and if we can possibly imagine going back to the period before the COVID crisis hit, um, then I think we have a, a very mixed picture. On the one hand, children were blessed by, at that point, having a whole variety of health things that were far and away much better than children in the past. Um, protections from a lot of diseases that in the past had really killed millions of children. I mean, the life expectancy of children 200 years ago uh, was was terrible. I mean, if between the ages of, of, of zero and one, probably one third of all children just died from various kinds right. of diseases, especially intestinal diseases. So if we look at the period of of the uh, late 20th or very early 21st century, children were not dying from that. They were not dying from polio, diphtheria. They were not dying from, and we're talking about the United States, they were not dying from innumerable diseases that were really very, very difficult for children and made child life and parenting um, painful. Uh, children were also not required to work as they had been for most of human history. Now that has good and bad aspects, but nevertheless, they were, they were in fact allowed and forced to go to school for longer and longer periods of time. Again, that has good and bad aspects, but I want to talk right now about the good things. And that is that never before had children gotten as much education and probably as good an education as they have now. Uh, the fact is that even though we're constantly criticizing education, we've all become educational cynics. The, the, the reality is that we invest more in schools than we ever had before. There are more kinds of services provided in schools, of, of physical health services, mental health and support services of all kinds, including free lunches and, and, and meals for, for children who can't afford it. So the, the increase in schooling, which has elevated the knowledge base of the society um, is is something that we should be very proud of. That doesn't mean there isn't room for for lots of improvement, but in fact, the schooling has been a a great blessing. Also, children now have a choice of toys and things, again, a positive and a negative reality, but a choice of toys and things that they never had before. Even in the early 20th century, if a child had a single doll, most children, I'm not talking about wealthy children, but most children, they were were in very good shape. The expansion of toys, the expansion of literacy, the expansion of books available to children and all kinds of entertainment. So children before the COVID crisis were actually doing very well. That doesn't mean things were perfect. 
uh, a lot of the things I've described also had negative consequences. I mean, I think keeping children away from meaningful work, as an example, um, can have negative consequences. Children want to feel effective. And schooling doesn't always provide all of that for all children. I mean, some, some children are not school-oriented and could use more work earlier on. And these days, even late teenagers are required to be in school. In addition, of course, and here's something that I assume all your listeners will very much understand, parental anxiety has increased tremendously. And the anxiety around parenting has affected children. Uh, we are worried about our children, and that gets expressed in the way we parent them. And we cosset them and fear for them. And we're worried these days, especially about economic matters. The increasing global competition has meant that even with elevated schooling, uh, with more schooling and with more resources, uh, children still feel as if they may not succeed later in life. Um, we live in a global world. They're now competing with children in China and in India and all over the world. So there are aspects of childhood that have been anxiety-producing for both parents and for children, certainly for older children. I don't know about younger children. But by the time they get to high school or and or college, they start worrying about whether they'll be able to do even as well as their parents let alone better, which has been, of course, the American desire, the American myth has been that children will do better than their parents. And by that, we mean all kinds of things, but especially in economic terms, that they will be more fulfilled in their, in, in their work and that they will be able to make a better living. So that has been on our minds ever since the 1990s, uh, when there has been more, co more global competition uh, for for good work. Wonderful. Thank you, Paula, for such a thorough and balanced answer. We're excited to double click on a lot of the points that you just brought up. Um, but with this next question, we want to take advantage of your vast historical knowledge. So in your book, The End of American Childhood, you take a sweeping look at the history of American childhood and parenting from the nation's founding to the present day. So we are wondering, what were the defining features of child-parent relations following the American Revolution, and what other significant events fueled the evolution of American parenting over time? I don't mean to be facetious, but how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, we, start with the, we start with the period of the revolution. I mean, one of the things we have to remember is that the United States had a successful revolution that continued. It was not contested in the way that the French Revolution was contested over time. So that the, the revolutionary principles and ideas of independence and autonomy and, um, and liberty were something that were also expressed or was desired in childbearing. Um, so on an, on an intellectual plane, I think American parents came to childbearing with the hope and the expectation that their children could be released from some of the more tyrannical aspects of European, of, of European children. And in fact, if we accept what we've heard and read, they did. American children were less deferential to their, to their elders and to their parents. 
They had more of a role in, in, in the household, in decision-making. Uh, and they uh, tended to be able to release themselves from parental authority at a much earlier age. And the reason for that has to do with the conditions that they operated in. American conditions after the revolution were, were, were multiple, but one of the things that was extremely significant was the vast availability of land to which children could move and did not depend on their parents to inherit land and to inherit their condition. The, the other was that there was economic opportunity because there was a lot of land and there was a lot of need for labor. Children could use their labor effectively and not only within their parental home, but they could go out and earn and make money, giving themselves a start in life. Uh, it was, it was fairly easy to do that. Uh, the other thing was that there were very few laws that governed parent-child relations. Unlike European Napoleonic law, which followed the French Revolution and which expanded all over Europe, there were no specifications about the deference that children owed to their parents. There were no specifications about inheritance law. So all of those things were open and allowed for a lot more independence between parents and children than had been, than, than was the case elsewhere. And certainly this was commented upon. Uh, by all the visitors who came to the United States. And some of them saw this in very positive light. Others saw this as, you know, American children were unmannerly. Right. They were very bold. Uh, they, they, were, they were undisciplined. Which I mean, kind they, of still they, persists today. That absolutely. idea still persists. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that American parents are somehow permissive is a continuing theme that has gone through American history. And we have accused most of our great thinkers about children of encouraging permissiveness. So, I mean, I'm thinking of John Dewey, permissive education, uh, Dr. Spock, permissive childhood. And all of these, both of these and others, have in fact tried to insist on the continuity of what I've just described which is that there should be a looser relationship between, and not a hierarchical relationship between parents and children, what Dewey correctly called a democratic relationship, and which Spock, of course, encouraged as autonomy in children and the desire for children to express themselves within, the fam within a democratic family. So uh, this idea of permissiveness goes all the way back to the revolution. And it is, in fact, what I would describe as the peculiar American nature of childbearing. And it's one that we've been wrestling with for 250 years up to the present. And I mean wrestling with. I, I, I think there's a continuing desire on some level to maintain that unique Americanness because we want to think outside the box. We don't want to think the way others have thought in the past. We want to be able to adapt to the future and children to be able to meet the needs of the future. And so we want to not control them so much. And yet, as we know from current matters, the element of control increasingly creeps in over time. Now, you wanted me to talk about the changes over time. And all I can really do is not explain them, but list them. 
So that initially we moved from a rural society to a more urban and industrial society. And that, of course, changed the environment. The Civil War also made it very clear that there were lots of children who were not being well cared for. You know, the Civil War created a lot of orphans in this society and fathers who could not care for their children because they were either disabled or had died during the war. 750,000 deaths as a result of the Civil War. Um, so that we, there was more input by the outside in terms of, by the, by the, the governments of various sort, local as well as, as state governments, about how children should be raised and more laws restricting parents in terms of, of raising children, which had not been true earlier, as I mentioned. So those, those are two things that happened. Then, of course, schooling became a very important matter by the late 19th century and a requirement, whereas schooling had basically been something that parents could acquiesce in or take their children out of or put their children in for two or three years and then take their children out of, which was often necessary as parents moved from one place to another. Um, schooling became a state requirement everywhere by the 18, late 1880s and 1890s. And over time, of course, the, the age at which children were allowed to leave school rose. So whereas previously it had been up to the age of 12 or 14, uh, by the 20th century, it was the, it was 16 and 18 or graduation from high school. So th those are factors that made a huge difference. The other thing that changed radically in the late 19th century was the introduction of pediatrics um, and the introduction of various kinds of health care things for children so that the fear of early death for children began to decline. Vaccines like a diphtheria vaccine, for example, which was a tremendously scary disease in the late 19th century. Um, and then the development of child psychology which over the course of the 20th century through today has been a defining aspect of parenting and a defining aspect of childhood, um, increasing uh, and changing and conflicting views of what's best for children in terms of their development and the whole ideal of development, the whole developmental ideal uh, was introduced by the, by the middle of the 20th century. Uh, that has been a, a major change. And I would describe one more thing uh, as crucial, and that is the introduction of consumerism in media in the, by the second half of the 20th century. And I, by that, I mean television, although things had begun earlier with radio. And, but by the middle of the 20th century, by the 50s and 60s, television and entertainments of all kind really, really do change the nature of childhood. So, so do um, new consumer products and consumer products that are enforced by the media, but also by peer culture. A, one of the byproducts of schooling for longer and longer periods of time is that peers become a much more consequential part of childhood than they had earlier. Where, whereas previously, young people would mix with older people at work and in the household. Once they are segregated, and that's really the right term, by age in classrooms and in schools, 
then the peers become far more significant. Just as developmental ideas become more significant, so do peers at different ages. Uh, and those also enforce various kinds of consumer ideals. And today, as we know, they are critical in media so that in, in our highly techno technological age, Facebook and a whole variety of, of, of other platforms, which I can't even name because I don't know. Um, have and they're now, changing by the day anyway. It's impossible to keep up. Yes. Um, have, have, have serious influences and competing influences with parents and with schools, both of those things. Whereas previously there had been an inter a, a, a meeting of the minds, a competition, an interaction between schools and parents. Now there is a third force that began in the 20th century, and that is peer culture. So those are the those are the things that I would demarcate as having had significant consequences over time for childhood and for parenting. Wow, there's so there's so much there's so many directions to go from here. I think that one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking is um, the idea that children were going to school for longer amounts of time. It, there was more of an emphasis. They were going until they were older. Um, and this kind of takes away from their ability to work and join the labor force. And now I think about modern times where you add four years of college and, you know, for some, um, and continuing degrees for some. And I'm wondering, like, what what is your perspective looking back on the amount of time that children, teenagers, young adults spend in school? Do you think that it would, do you think that it would be more beneficial to think about curtailing that amount of time or what might it look like so that we can gain back some of the benefits that children post-revolution had? And just to uh, add on real quick, um, to give you some context, because yesterday we interviewed a senior advisor to the Secretary of Education um, and in terms of his priorities and sort of needle moving and, and improving the quality of education, which you, you know, rightly have also said, there's definitely room for improvement. You know, he, a big, you know, platform is time on task and actually extending the school day and school year. So with that as sort of, you know, um, something, you know, some food for thought, we'd love to hear your response. That's quite a lot of food, actually. Um, <laughs> I have to say that I believe fundamentally that the extension of schooling to longer and longer periods of time has benefited some and has been really very bad for a lot of others. Um, I think the desire to do grown-up things, which Dr. Spock talks about extensively for younger children, is certainly true for older children. And the restrictions and restraints and the lack of autonomy that schooling imposes and the, 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 law, the extension of it over time that we now have experienced has put off adulthood in, in, in quite devastating ways, I think. Um, devastating both in terms, emotional terms, because I think young people really do want to have the ability to act on their own and to, to do the things that grown-ups do. 
uh, and in and, and in economic terms. I mean, it's become more and more expensive to grow up. And where the parents don't have the money, we have imposed that on young people who want to go to college and to graduate school and who are taking out massive amounts of loans, which impinge upon their grown-up life. I mean, they're, so that the kinds of opportunities are become actually rather than opened up by education, frequently closed down by education as we have encouraged more and more of it for everybody in a very undifferentiated way. Um, and I think that we need much more differentiation. Now, I say that knowing full well that there are many hazards in differentiating, differentiating education and that our experience as Americans with vocational education, for example, has been right. not great. Uh, we tend to put into vocational educational lines those who are poorer, less white, more immigrant, etc. That, that has been our historical experience. And that kind of differentiation is terrible and should not be where we go. But there can be a more thoughtful differentiation, which takes seriously the inputs of the young themselves and the kinds of things they need. And I would support, for example, various kinds of internships in high school. I mean, right now in high school, we have a lot of energy by young people who could not be more full of energy at any point in their lives than at that point. That's not being used in the classroom necessarily as everybody is required to go through certain rounds. I would even believe in breaking up the high school so that you take a couple of years off and then go back and you could go to work and earn some money or do various kinds of civic participation, which is an important thing in our culture too. If we believe in political democracy, not just economic democracy, then why teach children civics when we can have them engage in civic things. So I think that providing some alternatives for young people between 16 and 18, say, I'll use that age group, would be a very good thing to do. Um, now that, again, I think we need to be more open and utilize community colleges better than we can. Community colleges are excellent places that you can go back to after you've done various things. And where that is a choice that the individual makes. Um, and I know from the University of California system, which I'm the most familiar with, that we encourage community college students to then transfer to the main campuses of the University of California, UCLA or Berkeley or Davis, uh, if they're inclined towards more academic work. So opening up and loosening our educational system rather than the rigidity that's there now, I think would, would benefit young people, would benefit the society, um, and I think would, would, un, would undercut some of the negative consequences of age grouping that we have today uh, in schools, um, of negative peer culture, of an overemphasis on consumerism and on entertainment and on giving more meaning to young people's lives as they grow up. And you can, you know, begin to see how all of these elements are interconnected. So you say, you know, that 
it seems like we are sort of incubating our children for longer before adulthood. We want to get the conditions exactly right, right, just so. But that also potentially puts a lot of pressure on parents, right, to make all of the right selections and, you know, to create all of the right conditions, right interactions with their child. And so, you know, you mentioned that parental anxiety is through the roof. And so we'd love to, and we agree, (laughs) we certainly see that uh, with our peer group. And so we'd love to understand from you sort of what are the historical origins of that? How did, what are the cause and effect? How did we come to, to, to be here today? That also is a, is, is a complicated question, but it, it can be addressed in, 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 in several ways. Um, first of all, I think the emphasis on schooling and getting the children into all the right schools so that they can go then proceed to the right colleges, et cetera, et cetera, that's a fairly recent thing. I, I, I would suggest that that doesn't really begin until the 1960s. Now, for for very elite groups, that had existed earlier. But for the majority of American parents, I think that's over the last, what is it, 50, 60 years uh, from that time. What is older than that and goes back to to starting in the 1920s and even before is the emphasis of child-rearing experts. I mean, the kind of science of child-rearing that uh, began quite early in the 20th century, more for Americans than for people anywhere else. And uh, others in Europe began to adopt the, 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 the role of the child-rearing expert only after the Second World War, whereas mm. we had begun way before. Parenting Magazine, which is all about providing, uh, providing expertise, expert advice, begins in 1926, and it has a large audience. There are radio programs by the 20s which give parenting advice. And of course, we know newspapers give parenting advice. So even people who are not totally into reading every expert on parenting will get some advice through various channels. The Children's Bureau begins in 1912 to send out advice manuals in the millions to American parents through their congresspeople. Now, those are mostly physical advice, feeding, uh, being aware of certain kinds of diseases, uh, washing, bathing, that kind of advice. But gradually what creeps in, of course, is the psychological child-rearing advice. By the 1930s, you have different schools of child-rearing advice based in different psychological perspectives, behaviorism, psychoanalysis, um, the developmental perspective of Arnold Gazelle. I mean, there, there are now different and competing visions. By the time you get to Dr. Spock, who really does ha- have hegemony in the 1950s and 60s, he's there to t- try to calm the waters, right. which had become so agitated by that point. If only we could have a Dr. Spock today. Uh, because that kind of agitation is now back in spades. Right. We so love the title of, 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 of the book, The Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. Yeah, it says it all. You Trust yourself. You know more than you think you do, especially as child-rearing advice uh, experts are undermining your sense of what you think you know. So that, that I would put that as, as an extremely important component. The other component that I would put in in the increasing anxiety of American parents 
specifically mothers, starts in the 70s. And that's when women go out to work who have young children. Women had gone out to work before this time. I mean, American women, including married women, had gone out to work in the 1950s, for example, uh, to augment the household income. And, and working class women had been going to work to augment household incomes for a very long time, as had children. But by the 70s, um, the increasing need for highly educated, uh, literate uh, uh, workforce draws women in to the workforce. And of course, feminism also encourages them to go into the workforce. And in this early period, I think there's a lot of anxiety about leaving your children behind. Uh, lately, right. And when, when everyone in the neighborhood does it, there are no mothers on the street watching out for children. So you have a lot of panic taking place about child rearing that happens, a lot of guilt about on which anxiety, of course, plays off. Um, and in that context, in that very context, comes the hysteria, and that's really the word for it, about child kidnapping, uh, about which I have written, as you know. Um, and I mean, it is really a kind of hysterical component, component by the late 1970s and 80s, that if you're not constantly watching your children, some stranger is going to come and do the worst possible things to you. They'll take them away, they'll rape them, they'll kill them, you'll never see your child again. And at that period of the 80s, where this hysteria went all over the country, in practically every kind of community, small communities, rural areas, big cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, everywhere, encouraged, I hate to say this, by the media, who found this to be a very... Uh, sensational and uh, uh, and um, audience grabbing kind of story um, made parents, both men and women, but especially mothers, terrified. And so you got an elevated kind of anxiety playing on the fact that mothers were leaving the house, and could you, were children safe in childcare? There was a huge, a huge crisis about childcare, where people were told that their children were being taken in uh, in spaceships, that they were being abused and 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 raped. I mean, uh, there were there was witchcraft taking place against their children in certain kind, in certain communities. All bizarre is the only word for it. Truly bizarre. And yet the bizarreness was lodged in an emotional, some emotional qualities that parents were carrying around with them. And that was the, I think, largely the anxiety, the anxiety of going off to work, leaving your children in the context of the sexual revolution. I mean, after all, there had been a sexual revolution starting in the 60s and 70s, which had, had increased different populations. I mean, first unmarried women and then gay couples. So where were the boundaries on sexuality? So the boundary became children, that children became the new sexual boundary. And I think those two things help us to understand what happened with that crisis. Now we're in a, a situation where loaded on top of that is now an economic anxiety. 
that emerged in the 1990s, uh, where globalization and deindustrialization, which by which I mean cities, American cities, uh, like New Haven, where I am right now, or Detroit, or other places, um, lost their they, they didn't need their workforce because the industries had left had left the country. They'd gone offshore. And so many parents who just assumed their kids would go into the factories or into various kinds of work that their, that their fathers had done, and in some cases their grandfathers had done, that could no longer happen. I mean, it's, they would go into the unions and, and could have a safe harbor economically and think of ma- doing better than their parents as their salaries went up and all kinds of things. That was undermined by globalization, as we know. And so you now had more panic, not only, I mean, literally across the board in terms of classes. What are my children going to do? All of this is a package. You know, all of it related to each other. So it helps us to understand, I think, where we are today. So Paula, how do we kind of process all of this information and what suggestions can you give parents as far as what we can take from what we've learned in history um, and consider how what opportunities we have to affect our children's future? So I think that the, the kind of removing the sense of panic is the first the first thing that I that I would I would say to parents today. Um, you know, parents didn't know any better in the past. The other thing that I think is potentially a very good thing is grandparents. You know, you know when when child rearing literature first started, the first thing they would t- were told told parents is forget what your parents did. We have a new science, and your parents did everything. They had magical thinking, and they didn't know what they were doing. Forget your parents. Actually, these days, these parents, in most cases, are, are quite well educated. They're not the parents of the 19th century. They are parents who know things. And having grandparents available, as is more and more the case today, because grandparents are living longer. Uh, and they care about their grandchildren. And so I think actually introducing grandparenting back into parenting is a very positive thing. And grandparents have resources. Grandparents have time. All of those things, I think, would be a tremendous benefit for parents today, and they're available. So adjusting to the contemporary problems also means adjusting to contemporary resources. And that's one of the resources that could actually stabilize a little bit stabilize this constantly moving advice cycle that's taking place where it's one fad after another. And today there's a cacophony of different people talking at the same time and above all telling you, you've got it wrong. Well, that's not true. You've got it right. Start with that. That doesn't mean there isn't room for improvement. Obviously you want to talk to your doctor you want to read things or listen to things too, but with a certain edge and listen to your mother. She knows some things too. You could be angry at her, but that's okay. 
I'm smiling so brightly in the inside because I I love what you said about grandparents. Um, and I I know personally I rely tremendously on my parents. And and you said, you know, what they're able to offer my children is something so unique. So I love that you shared that perspective. It's almost like you're in cahoots, yeah, with our moms. We were not in cahoots. But uh, but the fact is that grandparents have resources. They have emotional resources. In many cases, they even have material resources that can help. And they have time resources that are also very helpful. And God, I mean, kids want attention and grandparents can give it to them. And they can individualize that attention. They can focus on that child so that if they're competing in childcare with five or six other kids. At the grandparents' house, you're the only kid, or maybe you have a sibling, but, you know, that is all to the good and not worry about, you know, being taxed, for example, for schools, which a lot of older people do worry about, and they and should see themselves as encouraging the benefit of childhood over time. I think that would be a very helpful thing, both individually and for the society in general. Just one last note on that topic before we shift over is I know that sometimes that relationship can be complicated. So I think also thinking about what we can take from grandparents, even if there is some, you know, even if there is a complicated layer there is something else that parents listening can think about as well. I'm glad you said that because I'm a grandparent and the relationship is complicated. So not with the child. But with the parents, of course, and and if we go back to what I consider not a model, but 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 certainly an influence, a continuing influence, and that is that we don't want to defer to older generations just by the fact of the deference, which is part of what the American revolutionary experience cut away in the United States. Now we don't defer just because they're parents but we defer to them because they have things to offer us, which make things better. I don't think we should stand still. I don't think that our children should be raised just as we were raised or as our, grand- our parents were raised. I think that we have to adjust. Uh, and in fact, if we stay put, then our children won't be able to adjust. And that would be a terrible thing. Uh, and one of the realities that I I, I emphasize in my book is that at every stage when there were major changes that took place, parents and children especially adjusted to those changes. We're capable of doing that. I don't think grandparents should impede that. I think they should be called upon where they can be helpful. It reminds me of a quote that I love, you know, it's something like, teach your children early what you learned late, right? And that there's be silly to to miss the opportunity to learn from the life experience that our you know parents provide. So I think that's a great reminder. Although I'm still as suspicious that uh, you spoke to our moms previous to this <laughs> recording because uh, they are thrilled with your uh, with your suggestion there. So uh, Paula, we could listen to you speak for hours. Um, you have so uh, gracefully and thoughtfully. Um, 
you know, given us this historical perspective um, that's, you know, just been so valuable. So we, we're so grateful. We like to wrap up each episode with what we call extra credit. They are sort of complete the sentence style questions. Okay. I think that you have, uh, you've, you've tackled <laughs> the first one actually sort of organically, which is usually, you know, what, if you could tell parents one thing it would be, but I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, take us to a punchline there if there's anything more that you want to share with parents. I would say to parents, um, your children will grow up, uh, let them grow up, uh, give them the best that you can. Don't expect them to follow you in everything. Don't overmanage them. Yep, the managed child, right, from your book. Now, I, a certain amount of management is just built into the situation that we live in. I mean, I don't think that we can avoid some of that. But don't overmanage them. Don't imagine that you should substitute for their own growing sense of, of what they need and, and, and how they should go about it. That's the short answer. You do want a longer answer. No. Beautiful. Okay. So the second is the role of schools is to... The role of schools is to coordinate with parents for the well-being and development of, of your children. Uh, I think that they are a, a crucial and important part of growing up today, certainly. Um, and we realized just how much we needed them during the COVID epidemic, that uh, parents relied on them not only for child care, which was pretty obvious, but for everything else, that they're, I mean, they're, they're partners. I mean, the schools and parents are partners in developing children's future and present um, and providing them with experiences. And we shouldn't overschool them either. As I said, as I said earlier, we should be aware of what individual children might need. I don't mean little children. Little children should go to school. No question about it. Little children should go to school. Right. And I mean, that's a new perspective for us. You know, I don't think I realize sort of how delayed adulthood has become. Um, and so that's really something to, to think about and, and continue to, to discuss, you know, into our, into our podcast. I realize, I realize that if I could take another moment. Sure. When I had graduate students who were assistants in my, in my lecture classes, uh, they were teaching assistants. And I realized that these were some people were pushing 30 and they weren't adults yet. I mean, they were subordinate to me in various ways. They could only earn a very limited kind of income. They could not grow up. Now, that was a very particular kind of, of, of apprenticeship that takes place when you're in graduate school uh, learning a discipline. But I think that that has become true across the board for so many people who can't grow up. I mean, we now know that marriage has been tremendously delayed right. where it takes place at all and, uh, and, and childbearing. And at least in the past, those used to be the two, the two anchors of adulthood. The third one was work. And all of those things are being delayed now. So um, I think we have, we have to be very careful that we not overemphasize uh, 
schooling to the detriment of growth. Great. And so this final question, I think, really bookends our, our discussion with you today, sort of coming back to the hope piece. Um, what gives you hope for the future of childhood? I think my historical knowledge gives me hope. And that is we have historically overcome lots of things. Wars, I mentioned before that the Civil War was devastating in terms of the number of losses. We've overcome economic crises. Uh, we've overcome um, problems in the streets. We've overcome massive changes economically, industrialization, urbanization, all of those things. And we've done it, and I think we've also managed to maintain an emphasis, at least our desire to maintain an emphasis on giving children some leeway uh, so they can grow and adapt. And I think that a kernel of that still remains with us, even in a time of managed parenting. That, And I think the best example of that is the reaction that took place to Amy Chua's book about tiger moms. I mean, it, it made parents wonder if they'd been doing it wrong, but then I think it brought them back to asking questions about whether that's how they think American child rearing should happen. So I think there is a kernel of that that still remains, and I think that's a good thing, uh, because we've been a society that has emphasized um, openness, um, growth, change. Uh, that tomorrow will be better than today. And while we can become cynical about that sometimes, and sometimes we're depressed about it, it's not the first time that's happened. There have been lots of fears about change. There have been lots of cynicism about the future. We'll overcome it this time too. And our children will benefit. That's a wonderful note to end on. Um, I really enjoyed each of your answers to those questions. You managed to make them really, really thoughtful. Um, Paula, we want to thank you so much for joining us. And before we end, if there is somewhere that our listeners can find you, whether it's on your website or social media or an email, please feel free to share that. Uh, since I am not, I, I'm old enough not to be deeply engrossed in social media, I will give you my email address. Great. PSFAS at berkeley.edu. Wonderful. Thank you and so much, love Paula. I'd to hear from your listeners, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Silly Questions. We hope you enjoyed learning from our guests as much as we did, and we'll see you back next week. For more information on this podcast, please visit our website at nosillyquestionspodcast.com and check out our Instagram account at nosillyquestionspodcast.com.